are concerned with, both at the beginning of life, infants and perhaps the elderly. It may happen a little bit in, in between those two extreme ends of life, but it is the failure to thrive. Oftentimes when a child is born, there is an expected rate of growth. That child is to put on weight. That child is supposed to grow. But oftentimes, not often, but there are times where a child doesn't. They become malnourished. They become sick and they become weak. And unless you can get to the root of the problem, why is this child failing to thrive? Unless you diagnose what the issue is, that child will be in great danger and perhaps not thrive and perish. And so as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, the the master diagnostician, I think that's how you would say that, the one who's good at diagnosing things. is going to diagnose, he's been diagnosing what's wrong with the Corinthian church. We see the symptoms of your problems, we see the symptoms of your illness, but we need to get to the heart of it. We need to get to the root cause of what is the problem. And so today we will look as, I guess, Dr. Paul will uh, consider and provide reasons for the Corinthians' failure to thrive. But before we do, let's review and and make sure we know where we've been. It's important that we not just read a text out of its context, but we need to kind of review that this this part of the, the Scriptures is not isolated. It's not on its own. It wasn't written in a vacuum. It has a lot of uh, material that precedes it. In fact, it's really a small part of a large argument. In fact, Paul's argument for diagnosing divisions in the church is begins in chapter 1 verse 10 and it goes all the way through chapter 4 so we're in the middle of a big big um i guess you could say a rebuke so anyways all of that to say let's review um paul has been putting forth the value of the cross the centrality of the cross to the christian church why the cross I proclaim Christ crucified. And Paul is putting forth this idea as the central theme of his message is that Christ crucified. And this is important because Greeks saw the cross as foolishness and Jews considered the cross a stumbling block. But Paul argues that the cross is the revelation of the wisdom of God and it is the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit to save. And so Paul puts forth, I speak Nothing but Christ and Him crucified because it is it, re, it is the revelation of God's wisdom. Do you want to be wise? You understand the gospel. This is the wisdom of God and the gospel is the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit to bring people into salvation. And so Paul is putting forth the cross as the remedy that is facing the Corinthian church. And the most obvious issue that the the Corinthian church is facing is that of division. There are schisms in the church. And we see that all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10. Um, And and he's like going, and, and he's saying, you know, you've put certain people on pedestals, and you've put certain teachers on pedestals. You said, well, we follow Paul, or we follow Apollos, or we follow Cephas, or we follow Christ, but you're putting certain men, Christ excluded, on a pedestal. Christ was a man, but he does deserve the pedestal. But the, the problem is, is that there's divisions and the church has been relying on human wisdom, not the revealed wisdom of God made through the preaching of the cross. So they have sought human philosophy to bolster their status um, amongst the church and they've relied on human wisdom, but have forgotten the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is the proclamation, the proclaiming of Christ crucified. And so factions arose and people were saying, well, we're a little bit um, more sophisticated than you. We're a little bit more mature than you. We are a little bit further along in the Christian life than you. And I mean, you're still saved, but not quite as saved as we are. 
There seems to be an understanding of the gospel, but there is a struggle to leave behind their pagan influences. It's interesting that this division has affected or perhaps infected every aspect of the life of the Corinthians. In fact, much of the problems that we see going on in the Corinthian church can be traced back to this divisive nature. So, I mean, if you've been in the church for very long or heard anybody talk through the book of 1 Corinthians, one of the things you will hear said often is that the Corinthian church is a mess. And it is. It's a mess. Oftentimes people say, we need to get back and be like the early church. And we respond with, really? You mean like the Corinthian church? No, 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 not like them. Because they were a mess. And much of the mess was the result of this divisiveness. In fact, I think that's why Paul deals with this issue first. And he spends four chapters, four chapters dealing with this issue. And he puts it up front. So this gives it kind of the priority of place. It is the thing that is causing... Um, Many other areas, it affects other areas of their life. It is affecting their relationship with their spouses. It is, uh, so Paul will eventually spend some time dealing with, with marriage because their sectarianism has uh, affected even the life together of husband and wife. It has affected relationships beyond husband and wife, just friendships. They're suing one another. I mean, if there is the kind of maybe an epitome of division, it is, I'm suing you, I'll see you in court. To a brother or to a sister. And then, so it's, it's affecting personal relationships. It affects their worship. Paul chastises them in the way they, they receive the Lord's table. They, they're sectarian, the rich and the poor. And they, They are divided. Even when they come and take the Lord's Supper, they're divided. And then, of course, one of the big places we see is in chapters 12 through 14 in the use of spiritual gifts. And they're saying, well, we all have spiritual gifts. Mine's just better than yours. And I'm a little bit holier than you. And so Paul is going to address all of those issues, but he's before he gets there, he's dealing with this issue of unity, this issue of division, this issue of schism. And Paul puts forth as the remedy to this division, Christ crucified. So if you want a remedy to this schismatic spirit, if you will, that's in the Corinthian church, it's not like start being nicer to people, withdraw your lawsuit, don't separate from your wife or your husband. Instead, he lifts up the cross of Christ and said, Remember Christ crucified. This is the remedy to your failure to thrive. So that's where we've been. Where I'm going to go today by way of preview then is Paul is going to make his case that the Corinthians are immature and it's time to grow up. Now, one of the things is I think the Corinthians believe that they are actually mature, but they're not. They're still infants. And it's time to grow up, which is why I titled this Grow Up. And he begins, and so Paul uses a lot of metaphors in this. So let me just identify them real quick. I'll unpack them as we go. But he uses the metaphor of infants and adults and milk and solid food. So that'll be one of his metaphors. He also uses um, uh, an agricultural metaphor. He's going to call the Corinthian church God's garden. And then he's going to introduce us to a building metaphor, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. But Paul mixes metaphors, so you should just get used to it. He's going to be all over the place with this. So infants and adults, agricultural metaphors, and then he introduces this idea that you are God's building. But the issue here really, and my main focus is going to be on the Corinthians' lack of growth. And their lack of growth is evident by the schisms that threaten the life of the church. So let's go ahead and I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3 in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, uh, please follow along as we read God's Word. This is the inerrant Word of God. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. 
I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. So we begin with this as the Corinthian church is exalting or venerating men. And I'm using that term venerate and in the sense of to show devotion, to, to adore. And so they have exalted men. In this case, Paul is going to really focus on himself and on Apollos. And you, you have lifted us up. You have venerated us. You have, you've given us a place of prestige that is inappropriate. So Paul now is going to, is, is rebuking this church. But I like how, how gentle Paul is. Paul is a great pastor. Sometimes we think of Paul as a harsh man, but he is a great pastor. He has such a, a loving heart for the people who he encounters. And he says, but I brothers, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people. Paul mentions to him that, that we're brothers. So I'm, I'm coming to you in, in, in a rebuke but I'm tempering the force by reminding you of our relationship. I am not an exalted apostle. I'm your brother in Christ. In fact, Galatians 6.1 reminds us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, understand this. Restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual, and that's a key phrase for Paul in this passage, the spiritual would be the mature. You who are spiritual, rebuke, but do so gently. Remember, you're not beyond um, falling into the same sin that your brother is in. And so Paul then says, I brothers. So we, see, we get a nice tone before the rebuke. Um, he, he tempers the harshness of his rebuke. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. When Paul came to them, he treated them as infants, and that's because that's what they were. When I came to you, brothers, when did Paul come to him? This is probably referring to his first missionary or his second missionary journey when he planted the church in Corinth. When I came to you, I treated you as infants because you were. That's what you are. I, and I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. You, and so there seems to be this distinction or this difference between the the infant and the mature, the spiritual person and the fleshly person. And so we need to ask ourselves then, um, what is the difference between the spiritual slash adult and the infant slash fleshly? Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is going to help us tremendously determine um, who is the spiritual and who is the um, natural. Who is the infant and who is the mature? And, and in, in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to start with verse 11, but we're going to really focus right this moment on verse 14. Eventually we'll get to 15, but verse 14 is where we're going to pause and give attention. But listen to what Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 11. He starts with how God has gifted the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith 
and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so Paul here talks a little bit about the, the, the children. Those He says, we... God has gifted his church with particular offices so that we would be built up and become mature and that we would not be children. And then he identifies the characteristics of those who are infants, those who are young in the faith, um, those who um, are to be treated as those who are considered infants. And the first thing he says is that they are tossed about by every wind of doctrine, really every new idea. Every new wave of ideas that comes along. Oh, we chase after this and we chase after that. Um, or every one of by human cunning and craftiness. This just reminded me. I just I couldn't help but go back to Genesis three and the description of Satan. And he is cunning, more crafty than any other animal of the field. That's why I'd say maybe perhaps even demonic. This cunningness is even demonic, but they're swayed. They're, they're swayed by human cunningness, cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Philosophy, non-Christian religious philosophies, the teaching of false apostles. There was a time in my Christian walk when I was a new believer. I was a part of a church, very, very different from from this one. In fact, I would have mocked our church if new Christian me came to this church. I would have probably mocked us. Shows how mature I was. But I remember in that particular church tradition that a book came out and it was all the rage and everybody was reading it and it was one that we just all had to have. So, of course, I went and got it. And the focus of the book was um, that if you want to get your prayers answered, the best way to get your prayers answered was through visualization, that you needed to visualize what you wanted. So, for instance, I would want a new bike, right? That just makes sense. But he wants a new bike. So I wouldn't just pray, Lord, give me a new bike. I would visualize the bike I would want. And it needs to be, you know, a certain color and a certain style and this and that. And that is the way I unlock the promises of God. And everybody was talking about it. I was a new believer and I read about 50 pages of the book and I'm like going, I don't think this is right. This doesn't appear to be right to me. I don't know much about the Bible or about God, but I've never seen this. But everybody's saying, this is it. I'm like, well, I don't know. I can't buy into it. Finally, I found one or two other people who who were troubled with it in the same way I was. New, um, these are kind of new ideas new ideas that are floating around the Christian realm that sound really good and even have a veneer of scriptural support, but it's just simply a veneer. Non-Christian religious philosophy, certainly all the rage today, is CRT, critical race theory. This is a non-Christian philosophy but it has infected, affected our churches. And, the, and so the, the non, the, the, the infant, the fleshly, are tossed about and they're never really coming to any solid rock. Chapter, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 13 says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Folks, I want you to understand. Paul says the child is unskilled in the word of righteousness. This does not mean that the person isn't a theologian. You do not need to be a theologian to have a firm grasp. I was not a theologian when I read that book. Still not. I know a little bit more. 
But I, was, I didn't know much. I've been a Christian a year and a half maybe. And I'd only been going to church maybe six months. I mean, even when I became a Christian, I didn't even know to go to church, so I didn't. And then about six months after going to a church and I'm exposed to this, it's like, I'm not a theologian. I just know there's something wrong here. For some reason, God gave some insight, but it says, Hebrews 5.13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And so Paul is addressing them as children. These are people who are swayed by every wind of doctrine, every new religious or philosophical idea that comes their way. They're jumping on board the bandwagon. And, and we see this in, in many ways, even in, in, the, in the Christian church. We see, you know, that the, the church growth movement was such a big deal um, and it's still, and it's, it's influence has still affects us today. And I remember reading and hearing churches and the, the general principle of the church growth movement is simply that birds of a feather flock together. Well, that's true. So if you want to have a church and you grow it, you figure out what demographic and what group you want to target, target that group. So if you want to be a church, uh, if you want to grow, Target 18 to 35-year-olds and just go after them. What a horrible church. That's a horrible church filled with nothing but 18 to 35-year-olds. And so our music, our decor, it's like, I like a church where there are babies like Lila and great-great-great-grandmas and grandfathers. In a church, I think that's a good church to me. Now I know we're always going to reflect our culture and uh, around us. This this is pine. We're going to have a certain demographic here just because of who we are. But it sounds wise, and it does cause churches to grow. Babes are tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And let's face it, a new believer does carry some old baggage with him into this new life. When, when we become Christians, we bring a lot of pagan and unbelieving baggage into our Christian life. I did, you did. And, and so it takes time to unload. But the point is, is progress should be made. And so Paul is rebuking this church because they are still conformed to the non-Christian patterns of their day. You have embraced all of the non-Christian culture around you and you're happy with it. On the flip side, the spiritual person is the one who is controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is, he has the mind of Christ. Um, Ephesians 4.15 says, So um, the the child is blown about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and Christ from the whole, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And so Paul is saying, listen, the mature, they have the, they are being led by the spirit, not by the flesh. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. I read you verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained through constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The babe doesn't know good from evil oftentimes. So, Paul is rebuking this church and he's saying, brothers, when I came to you, I could not address you as spiritual people, as infants, because you were. And then he uses this idea of you weren't ready for solid food, so I fed you with milk. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of milk and meat. And I want to be very cautious as to how we define what we're talking about. This is a metaphor 
that is, I don't believe it is meant to convey that there is like a, a lower level of Christian beginners who need theological pablum, and then there's the more elite upper echelon who can receive advanced esoteric doctrine. That we've divided the church into two groups. Those who can only receive just the very basics of Christianity, you know, like salvation by grace through faith and the Trinity and, you know, those types of things. But then, at some point, you'll be let in to the deep things of God. In other words, milk would be sometimes seen as the basics of Christianity, like the gospel and salvation. And then there are elevated truths that are to be revealed when you are mature. I don't think that's the difference between milk and meat in the Bible. Let me read you something from New City Catechism, and we have it up on the screen. This comes from the New City Catechism. And by the way, so a catechism is just, it's a way of instructing usually children, um, but they're very useful. There's a zillion great catechisms out there. In fact, Charlie Integrates teaches catechism into every one of the, the uh, reconciles church services. So it's a question and answer formula. It's just saying, who is God? And then there'll be an answer. But in this one here, let's just look at this question and answer. Question, how can we be saved? That would be the question. And then you would teach the new believer, a child, you would teach them the answer only by faith in Jesus Christ and a substitutionary atoning death on the cross. That's what we teach new believers. So a new believer... An infant in Christ, if you will. How can we be saved? They would know only by faith in Jesus Christ and his substitution, atoning death on the cross. Milk or meat? See, I don't think that when Paul is referring to milk and meat or solid food in this case, I don't think the difference is in content, but in depth of understanding. So... I ask this to a a brand new believer. How can we be saved? And they would say only by faith in Jesus Christ and substitutionary atoning death on the cross. And they would be absolutely right. Ask a theologian. How can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus Christ and substitutionary atoning death on the cross. Now the theologian's mind is going to go, well, let's think a little bit about this person, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, I know, is the promised Messiah back from Genesis chapter 3, 15. And then we see types of him all the way through the New Testament. And then in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to, um, to redeem those like myself who are born under the law. And that he has redeemed us. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And that he is perfectly righteous. And he took my sin on the cross and imparted to me his righteousness. So now not only am I sinless, but I am fully and completely righteous and stand before a holy God righteous. And he is the one who is fully God and fully man. And he just took that word Jesus Christ and just opened it up to unbelievable, unexplored depths. The content is the same. The form, quite a bit different. So it's not different in content. The the one who is new in Christ may not be able to explain the hypostatic union, or at least define it. In fact, I'd probably say, how many of us can define the hypostatic union? The hypo what? (laughs) But we talk about it. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man? You do you understand the hypostatic union. And so Paul is talking about, I fed you milk. I said, here, by faith in Jesus Christ and the substitutionary atoning death, you will be saved. And the people received it. They probably could not unpack all the depths of Jesus Christ and what does it mean, substitutionary atoning death. They may not have had the categories for um, for for some of the atoning work of Christ on the cross, but they understood it and they accepted it and they received it and they believed it and they were saved. And so Paul is saying, listen, I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. And now here's the rebuke. And even now you are not ready. In other words, act your age, Corinthians. Grow up. You are not babies. You should not be babies. 
I left you in good hands and I've come back three years later and you are still an infant. There is no excuse for that. Paul doesn't disparage the Corinthians for having been infants, but he rebukes them now for remaining as infants. There should have been progress towards maturity. That's his issue. Infants are infants. But a 20-year-old who acts like a 5-year-old is a problem. And these are people who should have been acting their age and instead they're acting like babies. There should have been progress. And this is why I say, even now you're not ready. I would love to share with you some of the, uh, the wonderful depths of who Christ is and what He did. But you're not even ready. And I rebuke you for that. I challenge you. And so, but here's what's interesting, what Paul does here. Notice how he discerns their lack of maturity. It is not intellectual. It is not like, okay, you guys, I've been gone three years. Now define the hypostatic union for me. That is not the test he put forth. The test that that allowed Paul to discern that they were still infants was ethical, not intellectual. Look what he says. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? The jealousy and strife that is among you, the division, the schism, is all the evidence I need to know that you haven't grown. If you had grown, those things wouldn't be there. He's not asking, can you define complex theological terms? What he's saying is the way you live out your lives is evident to me that you are not mature. You are babies in Christ because you're arguing and dividing and gossiping and slandering one another. That's all the evidence I need to know that you are not mature. Grow up. And so he, he realized their factions. You have exalted men. And now there is this open quarreling with one another. There is jealousy between groups. There is divisive behavior. That's how I know that you are you have not matured. So instead of focusing upon God and his victory over sin through Christ on the cross, made evident in the preaching to the Corinthians, they are fixed upon selfish agendas, personal preference. This is immaturity. It is walking in the flesh and not walking in the spirit. So Paul doesn't say, how many Bible verses have you memorized as a means of determining how mature you are? He's saying, no, you're living like babies. Because you're divisive. You're all about you. What does a baby, what does an infant care about? Right? A child is probably the most selfish being in the entire world. And as long as they stay there, I mean, if they stay there, that's horrible. When they're infants, yeah, we feed them. When they cry, we attend to their needs. Take care of them. But we do expect there to be growth. And if there's not, there's an issue. This is where Paul is. It's not an intellectual issue. It's an ethical issue. This is They are immature. So then Paul um, begins to define who are these servants? It may be a better, better way of phrasing it. What are these people that you are exalting? You're saying, well, I follow Paul and I follow Cephas and I follow Paul. What are these people? Paul says, they are servants through whom you believe. So look at verses 5 through 9. Paul is going to make the case that he and Apollo are fellow servants, differently gifted by God and whose success only comes by God. To form factions around Paul and Apollos is to misunderstand what they are actually doing. He challenges the Corinthian church to not give undue attention to men. And Paul is going to describe the true nature of himself and Apollos. He's going to kind of uh, separate Paul and Apollos out. So if you're not familiar with this, Paul planted the church in Corinth. So Paul arrives in Corinth. There is no Christian church. He preaches the gospel there on a second missionary journey, and people believe, and a church is planted. Eventually, Paul leaves because Paul, that was his MO. He was a church planter. That's what he did. He planted new churches. After Paul left, Apollos comes along and he becomes the pastor of that church for a while. And you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 18. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 18. There is no 1 Corinthians 18. Um, 
But there is in Acts 18, and you can read about how Paul plants the church and then eventually a guy by the name of Apollos comes and he moves to Corinth and he takes over the church there. And so Apollos was their pastor and he helped them to grow. And now there's this schism where people are saying, oh, I'm of Paul. And others are saying, I'm of Apollos. And Paul ends up saying, wait a second, what are we? What are we? And notice I use that term exactly as Paul uses, what, not who. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? See, the what focuses on the function or the office um, rather than the who, which focuses on the person. Take your eyes off of me and Apollos. Focus on what God has appointed us to do. And Paul says, here's who, what we are. We are servants. So Paul counters any veneration of men by lowering their status to that of a servant. So I am not the great apostle Paul who was arrested by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and have received incredible revelations and and have learned at the feet of Christ. That's not who I am. What I am is a servant. And Apollos is not a guy who's been trained by me and my brothers and sisters, Priscilla and Aquila, um, and, and a gifted orator. He's a servant. Appointed by a master. And all we are doing is carrying out the desires of the one who appointed us. That's what we are. Servants. This would be like saying, well, then he says, and then he uses these agricultural terms. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I planted, we are plowboys and field waterers. That's what we are. So he even lowers his status even more. We're just plowboys and and water boys. That's what we do. One of the things I did when I worked my way through college, well, I actually started when I was in high school as a busboy at a restaurant. And in our little hierarchy of the restaurant, um, I don't know if it's the same in every restaurant, but um, we were next to lowest on the totem pole, basically. Dishwashers were below us. But I'm a senior in college. It's kind of humbling when somebody says, so what do you do? I'm a busboy. How long have you been there? Six years. You'd think maybe you would have kind of risen up the ranks, you know. Why aren't you a cook? Why aren't you doing something else? See, busboys, nobody exalts busboys. Nobody came in and asked about the bus. What does the busboy think? I have an idea for a new product for this restaurant. Give me the busboys. Paul's saying, man, we're busboys. Maybe we're dishwashers. We are plow boys and water boys. We just plant and we just water. That's what we do. That's who we are. So he counters any veneration. How can you put a servant on a pedestal? We're just servants. We don't deserve any pedestals. Servants don't belong on pedestals. I planted, that is, I founded the church. Apollos watered, that is, he nurtured the church. And by the way, Apollos and I are not in opposition to one another, so stop putting us in opposition to one another. I did what the master commanded me to do, and Apollos did what the the master commanded him to do, and we're on the same page. We're working hand in hand with one another. We both do different things, but I am not superior to Apollos and he is not thinking that somehow he is superior to me or that we are in conflict with one another. We're not in opposition. Paul is recognizing that the labor of one without the other is useless. If I don't plant, it doesn't matter how good you water that field. And it doesn't matter how well fertilized that field is if there is no seed. We need each other. We are not in opposition. I do one thing, he does another. Praise God. And I'm sure sometimes those rules conflict. Sometimes Paul did actually stay in churches for a while. And he passed them. But there's no rivalry between a planter and a waterer. That would be absurd. God is the one, he is the life force that gives growth. With 
Without God, it doesn't matter how many seeds you plant and how much you fertilize and water the field. It is God who causes the growth. That's what Paul is focusing these infants. Success doesn't depend on the one who preaches, but on God who gives life. And these are God's assigned gifts. God composes... And he's going to really get into this detail in chapters 12 through 14, right? The passages that deal with spiritual gifts. And he's going to really drive this home. But he's setting the stage um, for that way down the road. We had a long time before we get there. But God has composed his church of many different people with various gifts and abilities. We are fellow servants. And even in this church... It functions because there are many people with many different gifts who can do various things. But we're servants. And it's God. Whatever growth, whatever maturity takes place, it is God. I I remember wrestling with this. Again, when I was in college, I went to Grand Canyon. Back then it was Grand Canyon College. We weren't quite a university yet. And back then, they had these beautiful, beautiful grassy fields out on Camelback Road. Now they got parking lots. But I used to go out onto that grassy field. They're huge. And, and I would just think and pray and reflect. And what am I going to do? I'm going to get a Bible degree. What am I going to do with it? And as I wrestled with it, I... I, I I really began to identify, or God helped me identify my passion and what I was passionate about. And what I was passionate about was teaching Christians to know the Word of God better. Passionate about it. And I wrestled a lot because why aren't I passionate about evangelism? Why aren't I as passionate about evangelism as I am with this other thing? Shouldn't I love evangelism? Shouldn't that be my goal? Shouldn't everybody be an evangelist? And it took me a while, and God's like, I've got evangelists. There are people who are passionate. That's not to say that I'm saying I don't do evangelism or I don't share the gospel. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's not my passion. I do it. I, I actually enjoy doing it. I enjoy it much more after I've done it. I'm going, that was awesome. I need to do that more. But my passion is to take those who have been evangelized and help them grow in maturity. That's where my passion is. See, but without the evangelist, I got nobody. But an evangelist without the teacher... causes the church to commit child abuse. We give birth to a child and then leave it on the table. Somebody's got to help the child. Somebody's got to feed the child. And I'm like, I want to feed the child. I want to see that child grow to be an adult. I want to see that child have children. They're not in conflict. I wrestled with that. Like, man, I, I should be doing evangelism. That's what I need to do. Sometimes I, I feel guilty sometimes and I was like, I need to ask Simone to do some horrible task, you know, administratively for the church. Not like an illegal, horrible act or anything like that. <laughs> I've never asked her to rob a bank or anything like that. But I'm like, and I wrestle with it and I'm like going, oh man, if somebody asked me to do that, I'd hate it. I'd just like, why would you give me such a horrible task to do? Oh, I hate this. Which is why I'm trying not to do it. But it needs to get done. And I say, well, Simone, you know, maybe, possibly, if you think. But it's okay if you don't. She's like, I love this stuff. Really? You love this stuff? This this administrative task that it's like I despise and wouldn't want on my worst end. You love it? Oh, I love it. I'm like going, awesome. Different gifts. We're not in conflict with one another. We're functioning as God has gifted us. Paul is saying, what are we? We're servants. We're not in opposition. God's the one who causes the growth. Then he goes on and he says, you are God's field. I love this. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's really interesting because God, 
The word God, theos, here is in the place of priority. God is emphasized. It is God who reveals Christ to us. It is God then who calls us to place our trust in Him. God gives us the Holy Spirit, brings in the lost, grounds believers in the faith. This, the means is the church and all those who are in it. We are God's garden. That's an awesome thought. We are God's garden. So we are not free to cause division and form factions and create destruction amongst God's garden. We are not free to pluck up the flowers that He has grown. We are in need of care and cultivation. And let me just say that perhaps one of the things that is driving the wedge in this church and in the Corinthian church, and it is probably one of the, the most horrific things that a church can engage in, and that is gossip. Perhaps the most divisive, destructive tool that exists in God's garden. As God's field, we are in need of cultivation and care, and we cannot, we cannot support our, ourselves. God has provided the means for that care and cultivation, brothers and sisters in Christ. So we need to be... Often when we, when we gossip, basically we are exalting ourselves and we are diminishing another. Well, you know so-and-so. And you know they're doing such-and-such. But not me, not me. I'm a little bit better than them. Paul is saying, stop dividing the church. Stop being divisive. You're God's field. Plant, grow, serve in the area that God has commissioned you. The means that that God has given is the church. We are God's garden. So anyways, let me, uh, I'll conclude with this. The cross is central for maturity. The cross is central for maturity. If we're going to grow, we can never lose sight of the cross. I think about the Ephesian church in Revelation, right? This was a great church, right? They had some pretty good pastors like Paul, Timothy, others, John, pretty good pastors. They're saying, you've lost your first love. Your problem is you've forgotten Christ. The cross is at the central, is central to our growing. If we are to be mature believers, we need to keep the cross central. Jesus died for us, not because we were wise. He didn't die for us when we became wise. In fact, we were ignorant of his plan. And he died for our sins anyways, and then he revealed his wisdom to us. So remember the cross. We should ask ourselves, are we walking according to the dictates of this culture where self-interest is prioritized? Probably the biggest thing in Christianity today is um, it's just me-centered. I don't want to pick on women, but women's ministry is all about me. Men's ministry too. Any of the more popular preachers are just talking about how to really be a better you. That's not the gospel. Scripture is, how can I serve you? And we look at the text and see, how does this make me feel better about myself? Are you walking according to the dictates of this culture? So it's time maybe to get back to the cross. Are we venerating certain celebrity pastors or or are we even striving for such recognition? I have no problem with men and women who are gifted speakers. God has gifted certain individuals to communicate well and the fact that they draw a crowd is awesome. The fact that people are drawn to certain individuals who are gifted, that's what God has given them. And as long as they're speaking... In keeping the cross central, I'm good. But we don't venerate them. We don't lift them up as though they are somehow greater. I mean, we see the mighty fall all the time. They are just like you and me. Perhaps even more vulnerable in many ways. And are we striving for that kind of recognition? I want to be 
the big wig in whatever field I'm in? Do our actions cultivate and beautify God's garden or do our actions destroy the garden of God? How do we speak to one another? I brought up Galatians 6.1 earlier. One of the things is restore them. Do you see a brother in, in, who's sinning? Restore them. Restore them. This means go to them, not go to another. I see my brother in sin, so I'm going to go on over to my other brother and say, man, do you see him over there in sin? (laughs) Good thing you and I aren't like that. Go to him and restore him in in a spirit of gentleness, knowing that you too are susceptible to such things. So how do we speak with, are are we beautifying and cultivating the garden that God has given us? And ultimately, as I said earlier, remember the cross. It is the center of the Christian faith and it humbles us. The man upon the cross was the only person who didn't need to be there. Father, we give you praise and thanks this day. Lord, I pray that we would grow. I don't know always what maturity and infancy looks like, but I pray that wherever we are, we grow. Help us to love one another. Help us to speak well of one another. When we need to rebuke a brother or sister, Lord God, let us do so in a way that is appropriate to restore them. Let us foster and cultivate the garden, the garden that we have is this church. Our families help us to cultivate that garden and help it to grow and prosper and be fruitful. It's a small garden, but it's a good one. And we pray, Father God, that we would be fruitful and that we would honor you in all that we say and do. So have mercy upon us this day. Grant us grace. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing.